0: Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna, we're gonna jump in. God, I thank you for the privilege of, of opening up your word, just to know how, how amazing it is that you haven't left us wandering around in life, just wondering how we can know you, but you, you stepped in and, and revealed yourself to us. God, we want to know you more. And today, as we look at some of the darker parts of, of the story you've written, God, help us to be honest with ourselves, help us to see ourselves in the story, uh, but also to see ourselves in light of your grace. And God, we ask that you would change our hearts Help us to live in a freedom that's reflective of the love that you have poured out on us. God, in name we pray. Amen. Well, um, the first time I ever went through the whole house buying experience, um, Lucy and I were engaged, close to getting married, but I was in Texas. She was in Georgia, so I was buying the house with her sight unseen. Um, the realtor was taking me around to all these places, and one of the houses that we saw online that looked so beautiful and looked like it met everything that we wanted, um, we pulled up in the driveway and it looked perfect. But then when we walked in, just immediately through the door, I was hit with the smell of pet odor like I've never been hit before, like just shovel to the face. It, was, it wasn't just like maybe an accident happened somewhere in the house and the smell was, was lofting towards the front door. It was like this place had been soiled for years on end by multiple pets and that the person just breezed it like that would fix it. Like it was, it was horrible. And the realtor with a completely straight face just goes, we can paint the walls and put some new carpet in. It'd be great. And I was like, no, it won't. Like there's, this is in the depths of the soul of this house. You can't just cover that up with some paint. You need to burn this thing down. And, and so when I think about that house, I can still see it. I can still even smell it. And if I think about it too much, it'll actually make me feel a little sick to my stomach. All right. And so what we see is that sometimes when things engage our senses, you know, or our imagination or our emotions, they have a way of attaching themselves to memories, Right, And so when we look at Matthew chapter 1, which is the whole genealogy of Jesus, and, and that's mentioned before his birth, Matthew is giving names along the way that are meant to bring back memories. And for the original readers, these are some memories that they would rather not think about, some memories that might even make them feel A little sick to their stomach. And so, one of those memories that he wants us to think about, that he wants us to remember, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I know that picking up in the middle of a story is really tough. For instance, Lucy, my wife, she's out of town right now, and so I'm living that that bachelor life, which is cool for about a day, and then it gets really lonely, and so I've been skimming Redbox. The only movie that I want to see is Equalizer 2 but I haven't seen Equalizer 1 and I don't know how to find that. So I'm like, well, I'm not gonna rent a movie and be completely lost. And so I've done no Redbox. And so maybe you're thinking I, like, how do I just pick up in the middle of 2 of Samuel? Well, real quick, I wanna catch you up in the larger story. So Adam and Eve mess everything up and the world starts to spiral away from God. And then about t- 12 chapters into Genesis, God makes a promise to this guy named Abraham. And he says, hey, through you, one of your descendants, I'm going to save the world. Abraham has a, a grandson named Jacob who has 12 sons. Those sons end up in Egypt and they have their families there. They basically become over the course of a couple hundred years they become a nation within a nation. And then they, they find themselves enslaved. And that's not God's plan for his people. And then with that, he sends Moses. Moses rescues them, brings them out of Egypt. They don't trust God. They wander around the desert for 40 years. And then Moses passes away. And this guy, Joshua, leads them into the promised land. At this point, they're a real nation with their own land amongst other nations. And so God leads them through a series of judges which are people that are kind of coming in and correcting their, their wrongness, but it's really a dark part of Israel's history. And then after that, Israel cries out for a king because other nations have kings. And Samuel, it's kind of this this bridge figure between judges and the time that Israel was led by kings. And Samuel says, you don't want that. Kings are takers. They'll take your property. They'll take your money. They'll take your wives. Like kings are takers. You don't want that. But the people said, yes, we do. So God gives Israel three kings while Israel is united. So if you think back to Jacob and his 12 sons, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Three kings led Israel while all of those tribes were together. Saul. David, the guy that killed Goliath, and then Solomon. Right? And so in first and second Samuel, one of the questions that we're wrestling with is who's fit to be the king of God's people? And so in first Samuel, you have the negative example, Saul. Saul is not fit to be Israel's king. And then in 2nd Samuel, we get the ideal. It's David, like he's the guy that can lead God's people. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God tells David that, hey, one of your descendants is going to have a kingdom that will never end. David is a man that's seen as a man after God's own heart. And then in chapter 10, there's this epic battle where, where David's going back and forth with this other king. He comes out victorious and basically is in control of what's known as the whole Transjordan area. Right, and so in chapter ten, that's the peak, the mountaintop high of David's life, and then in chapter eleven, everything descends as he begins to fall. All right. so we're picking up after the mountaintop high. All right, we're picking up after the peak of David's life. All right, so now now you, you're caught up with equalizer one. Let's move to equalizer two. All right, so. First Samuel or 2nd Samuel Chapter eleven. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Alright, so from chapter ten to chapter eleven, about a year has passed. There's a rainy season. The roads are all messed up during that time. The rainy season has passed, roads have dried, and now you can march your army to other places to conquer them. So during this time, all of the able-bodied men go out to fight, to destroy things, to besiege things. But David, for some reason, stays home. All right, so David stays back as his men are out fighting. Verse 2, it says, It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof, a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Right, so, so think about this movement here. David's sitting on the couch, bored, right? Maybe he's watching their version of Netflix, but he's, he's hanging on the couch. He's like, ah, this is kind of boring. I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna walk up to the roof. So he's on the rooftop, just loitering around. I don't know what you do on a rooftop, Um, But he's walking around the rooftop. Then he looks down and he sees a woman who's bathing. And what we're going to find out in verse 4 is she's not bathing for sanitary reasons. There was a law in Leviticus that after a menstrual period, a woman had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. So she's actually cleansing herself, being faithful to God's law. So she's up doing this ceremonial cleansing. And David sees her and it says that she was very Beautiful, and that word very is kind of something that that gives us a warning. When it says that she's very beautiful, it's like the author is saying, warning, danger is ahead. So he sees her and he takes interest, right? And then it says in verse three, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? All right, real, real quick, there's a word in there in verse three, sent, Alright, you also see that in verse one, the word sent. David sent Joab. And now verse three, and David sent and inquired. That word sent is used twenty-three times in chapters ten through twelve. It's a it's a key word, and generally when that word is used, it's about power. Alright? And so in chapter ten, you have two kings who are sending against each other, then David comes out victorious. He's the one with the power. In verse one, he sends his men. He has the power to do that. Now he is sending to to inquire about Bathsheba. He has the power. So you're seeing this word sent over and over and over again. And so David is using his power. So in verse two, we see that there's danger ahead, warning, danger. In verse three, he starts to inquire about this temptation, so he sends to find out. But then facts are given to him. So, so the report comes back, and here's what we find out about her. She's the daughter of a very prominent man in Israel. And she's the wife of Uriah, and Uriah is actually one of David's mighty men, right? And so if, if you read through First and 2 Samuel, you'll see that David basically surrounded himself with these like, Navy SEAL, green beret, PJ type guys, and these were incredible dudes that fought by his side that were incredibly loyal to him, and they were basically his closest friends on the battlefield. Uriah is one of those men. This is a guy that David knows intimately through the battlefield, a guy that David knows would lay down his life for him, and so and so we know that it, she's the daughter of a prominent a prominent man in society, that she's the wife of one of his closest. Friends, And we also know in verse 4 that she is someone who's faithful to God, that she's faithfully following God, and therefore she's probably faithful to her husband in marriage, right? So at this point, as you're reading it, if you're reading this for the first time and you haven't heard this before, you're probably thinking, Like, okay, like now that these things are reported back, this is way too close to home. There's no way that David will make a mistake and act on this temptation because this is going to get back. This will go bad. So we're probably good. The facts have been reported. All right, verse four. So David sent, there's that word, sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for her uncleanliness Then she returned to her house. All right, so now he acts on his temptation. He uses his power to get what he wants with little to no thought about how it could affect other people around him. We don't have any any account of a conversation. We just have kind of really a short description of, of the action words. He sent, he took, he lay. We have just this this cold account of his sinful behavior. Then in verse 5, it says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And so being that she just finished her menstrual period, this is the prime time to get pregnant. He lays with her. She does get pregnant. Then she sends to him to tell him the message. All of a sudden, remember that word Sent has to do with power. We're seeing the power is beginning to shift. David thinks that he's been in control of the situation. But now that we see is is he's actually fighting a power that's greater than himself. He's he's fighting the power of his own sin. And so look at verse 6. It says, so David sent word to Joab. There's that word sent again. We're going to see it three times in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. All right, so, so he's doing a lot of sending here, trying to cover his sin and to conceal what's happened. All right? And it says, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And, and so he brings Uriah, one of his mighty men who's on the front lines of the battlefield, he brings him home and acts like he's interested about what's happening on the battlefront. Tell me, how's the general doing? How's Joab doing? How are are the men doing? How's the war going? He's acting acting interested, and Uriah sees that his purpose for coming back must have been to give him an accurate report. But then David, in verse 8, then David said to Uriah, okay, you're home. Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this Thing. So, David has this plan. It's like, okay, I'm going to bring Uriah off the battlefield. I've got to act quickly because I need this thing to line up on the timeline. I'm going to bring Uriah back, and then I'm going to act like I'm interested in how the things are going with the battle. And then, surely, I'll send him home with a gift. And, and, and surely he'll go to his house, lay with his wife, and then in a couple of months when she has a baby, it'll all make sense. And he'll be like, oh, this must have happened when I came off the battlefield to give my report to the king. But instead of going home and sleeping with his wife, he lays on the porch. He's like, no, I want to be faithful to him, man. I want to be faithful to to my God. I'm not going to do that. So in the the following verses, David goes, okay, plan two, plan B, I'm going to get him drunk. So David gets Uriah drunk, tries again, and it still doesn't work. And the irony is that a drunk Uriah is actually more faithful than a sober David, all right? And and so let's, let's pick up in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So what's happening here is plan A and plan B did not work. So now David is desperate. So he takes a letter and he writes it. He folds it. He seals it with his signet ring, with his seal on it. And then he hands it to Uriah. All right, so Uriah is carrying a letter from the king. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that that he may be struck and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were violent men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. What's happening here? Uriah carries his death sentence to the general and hands it to him. What do you think Joab thought when he opened this up? Do you think Uriah looked completely clueless? Do you think Uriah was thinking, let's go, like, open the letter, but I, I want to get back with my men. And he's, he's eagerly waiting to get back. And what do you think Joab's face looked like? Do you know what you just handed me? What did you do to the king? What offense did you commit but nonetheless, he, he does exactly what David asks of him. He sends Uriah to the front. The men pull back and Uriah loses his life. David's in a dark place here. David's in a really dark place. And here's, here's what we see is that sin, once it has been committed, if suppressed and concealed, will only lead to more sinning. And if left uncontended, will result in hardened, uncaring sinners. I mean, David's response to the news that Uriah has died is completely cold-blooded. It's like, that's the fate of soldiers, let's move on. I mean, David in the past, if, as you read through First and Second Samuel, he deeply mourns when his enemies die. When his enemies fall, it breaks him. And now one of his closest friends has died because of something he did, And he just says, let's move on. He is completely calloused to this. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, this is the last sending that David will do when it says that David sent and brought her to his house, no longer will David have the power. From this point on, Joab and God will do the rest of the sending. David thinks he's got away with it. He he probably thinks that he looks noble to other people. But here's the king, and, and he's, he's taken a, a fallen warrior's widow, and he's going to care for her. So people probably are going to look at me and think that I'm such a good guy, and I'm going to care for her. And, and then they're going to think that this child is, is my child, and it looks like he's gotten away with it. He thinks that he's been successful in using his power to cover his sin, but what we see is that what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in chapter 12, what happens is God confronts him and writes, what has happened, all right? And so chapter 12 is all about the confrontation, all right? So, so as we think about this story, why would Matthew, why would Matthew in the genealogy of Christ want us to think about the fallenness of David at the same time as we think about the birth of Christ? Why in the world would Matthew want us to think about this story at the same time as we're thinking about Jesus being born? It's because this story helps us to see our need for Jesus. This story helps us to see our need for a Savior. All right, so in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew originally wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience, which means the original readers would have been steeped in the Old Testament. They would have known these stories like the back of their hands. And when he talks about Tamar, they know that this was a story that involved incest. When he talks about Rahab, they know that this is a story about a prostitute. When he talks about Ruth, they, they know that she comes from a Moabite background, a, a, a basically a, where there's racial tension. When they, when they hear these names, they would have thought about the outsiders. Now, where we read the genealogy and we get three verses deep and then begin to skim through to the good stuff, That's not how a Jewish audience would have read that. They would have been extremely interested in the pedigree of Jesus because if you're asking them to follow this guy, they wanna know why. And one of the reasons why you would follow somebody would be their family tree. So they're saying, well, why should I follow this man? And so Matthew starts to list off all of these outsiders, gender outsiders, moral outsiders, ethnic outsiders. At this point, the original readers would go, why would I wanna follow him? why would i want to be a part of this guy's life when he's attached to all of these people that are outsiders to God's people like th- th- this is this is a, a corrupt bunch of people like why would i want to be a part of someone's life that's 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 a part of that tree but then he gets to david and when he says david for them knowing the story they would have thought yes that's a name you can leverage david i mean he's he's our hero he slayed goliath David, he's, he's a mighty warrior where Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. David, he's a, he's a faithful king that was a man after God's own heart. Yes, like David, All right? So they would have thought, yes, that's a name that we can follow. That's a name that you can leverage. But then what, what Matthew does is he says, David gave Solomon, who was the son of the wife of Uriah, Why wouldn't he not say Bathsheba? Why did he say the wife of Uriah instead? Because he baits the readers in with the mentioning of David. And then he switched the attention by saying the wife of Uriah to make us think about everything that surrounded David's fall. Here's what we see is that even the best of us, even our heroes are in desperate need of a savior. Even the best of us, even our heroes, are in desperate need of our Savior. You see, when we see ourselves against the backdrop of God's holiness, all of a sudden, the king is no better than the prostitute. And the prostitute's no worse than the king. And here's what the birth of Christ shows us. The fact that Jesus stepped into history shows us that no matter how good you think you are, you need God's grace. And no matter how bad you think you are, God's grace has been offered to you. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? With the fact that, that even the best of us, even our heroes are still in need of a Savior. What do we do with this fact that we need Jesus? We need to live like we need him. If there's there's one thing to do from this text is that we need need to live like we need Jesus, right? So it's one thing to say we need God's grace. It's another thing to live like you need God's grace. I I wanna explain that to you because I want you to miss that. It's one thing to say, I need God's grace. It's another thing to, to have the actions of your life display that need, right? We need to live like we need God's grace. And when we fail to live in God's grace, or when we fall into this line of thinking that the way that God sees us or the way that people see us is dependent on what we do instead of what Jesus has done, like David, we begin to manage our lives in secrecy. Okay, When we fail to live like we need Jesus, when we fail to live like we truly need God's grace, what we do is we begin to manage our lives in secrecy. We manage our sins, we manage our struggles, we manage our doubts, and when we do that, it puts a weight on us that we can't carry. It's exhausting, it's lonely, and it will lead us to collapse. It will eventually crush us. Like, so when we try to manage our lives because we're living like, like the way that people view us, the way that God views us is dependent on ourselves, we try to hide the bad stuff. And when we do that, it wears us thin and it eventually crushes us. So we have to be honest. Right? And I want you to do this. Be honest with yourself. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, if someone's said like, hey, how's your, how's your walk with Christ going? How does it feel? Do you feel tired? Do you feel lonely? you feel like you might not make it? Because if that's how you're experiencing Jesus, chances are whether you know it or not, you're trying to manage your life in secrecy. Chances are you might know that you need grace, but you're not living like it. In Matthew 11, Jesus says these beautiful words. He says, come to me All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, following Jesus isn't meant to be exhausting. Following Jesus isn't meant to be lonely. Following Jesus isn't meant to crush you. He says, Come to me and I'll give you rest. That's what's offered to us at Christmas. That rest is what's extended to us through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. You know, what's really interesting is because so often we read that text and we fail to see what comes before it. If you read in context, in verse 16, this is what Jesus says. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, right? So imagine kids in the marketplace, and this is what they say. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. What's happening here is that people are doing things and expecting others to perform in response, all right and so he says for John came either eating or drinking and they say he has a demon the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners you see this is attached to performance he's saying when i stepped into history people had these these preconceived notions of how i would act And people want me to fall along their agenda and to do the things that they want me to do. And when I failed to do the things they wanted me to do and did what I needed to do, people got upset. And so what he's showing here is that when we try to perform for people, when we try to impress them with good lives or try to impress people by holding back the dark parts of our lives, it is a heavy yoke. It is a heavy weight. But when you realize that you don't have to perform and do things for God, but the work has already been done because of Christ, that lifts the burden of performance off of you. And all of a sudden you have the freedom to rest because you're no longer trying to perform. Right? So, so why do we try to perform? Why do we, why do, we do that? I think the reason we try to manage our stuff in secrecy is because we want people to think we're better than we truly are. We do our best to manage our, our stuff in secrecy because we want people to think we're better than we truly are. You see, and when we do that, when we lean into what we bring to the table instead of what Jesus brings to the table, our lives begin to look a lot like the pet smell house, right? When we, when we live like the way people view us and the way that God views us is dependent on what we bring to the table, we look a lot like the house that reeks of pets. Sure, you can, you can paint the walls, you can put new carpet on it, you can take beautiful pictures and throw it up on MLS and people from the outside looking in can see something and be impressed. But if people are actually able to come into your house, they would immediately smell a stench that would make them want to puke, right? When we fail to actually live in God's grace, that's what we are. We're just this pet stench-filled house. But when we stop trying to cover up our crap, all right, when we stop trying to cover up our junk, and get honest about how much we need God and how much we need a Savior, and we begin to live in light of that, that we need God's grace just as much today as the first day that we trusted him, then what happens is our lives become an aroma that's pleasing to God. Our lives, when we live in our need for God's grace, become something that when God smells, he goes, that's what I want. I want you to live in a way that you know that you need me. That's pleasing for me to see you leaning into me. So whether you're doing good or whether you're falling, at the end of the day, our hope is that because of Christ and our need for him and the, the fact that Christ has been extended to us, that when we live in that, our lives are something that God smells and is pleased with. When we begin to see ourselves and others as God sees us, it gives us the freedom to come out of hiding. And when we have the freedom to come out of hiding, we can experience the rest for our souls that Jesus offers. So in closing, I want to ask you one more question. What do you need to be honest about today? Where are you trying to manage your life in secrecy? And where do you need to live out what it means to live in God's grace? Will you confess that to God today? Will you confess that to God, that there are some things that you're trying to hide from him as if he didn't already know? Would you invite someone else into your life to walk with you? And this is just anybody. Like, I'm not saying just like go to find a sh- I'm talking like someone that you can trust, someone that you know is honestly pursuing Jesus. Will you... Will you take them and and say, hey, I'm struggling, man. Or, hey, this is something I've been hiding in and it's wearing me out. And I need need to confess it to you. You need to know this is where I'm at. And will you walk with me in that? Will you confess what you're hiding to God? And will you bring someone else alongside you so they can walk with you? The last thing you want to do is to follow David's pattern of managing your life in secrecy. Maybe you won't do that because you fear that if people know you, they might not like you. The good news is that the most important thing about you is what God thinks of you. In Hebrews 2.11, the author tells us that God is not ashamed of you. What that means is that in Christ, when God looks at the worst part of your life, He doesn't see you as someone that he's ashamed of, but someone that he's proud of. When God tells his story, when you think of yourself in full exposure, your life isn't a story that he has chosen to write out, but a story that he's chosen to write in. Because as his grace is displayed in you, his glory is made known to the world that we're in. God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for showing us that even our best heroes fall short and are in desperate need of you. God, help us to see that we are just as capable of David of some of the darkest sins we could ever imagine. That is in all of us. But God, help us to not follow his pattern of walking in secrecy. God, help us to not manage our lives hidden from others, but let us know that because of your grace, we are free to live exposed to those that we can trust, to those that know you and love you. And God, let us walk in community with others that will push us closer to you. God, let us know in the depths of our heart that we need a Savior. And God, let us live with every inch of our lives in a way that shows that we are desperate for your grace. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. We want to take time to respond to that truth. Every week at Redeemer, we want to... Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.